Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I am Eliana Johnson in for Chris Starwalt, who is, is he on vacation? We don't really know where he is this week. Um, welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. And here with me this week, filling in for Chris, we have Eli Lake of many affiliations, including, let me see if I can get all of them, the Clemens Center of the University of Texas at Austin, Commentary Magazine, mm-hmm. and the host of the Re-Edge. the Re-Education with Eli Lake, which you should all subscribe to and leave at least a five-star review at for. Least. Did I miss any affiliations? Occasionally, the Washington Free Beacon, because I write here. Occasionally, New York Sun, maybe the American Spectator. Okay. Not the American Spectator, the UK Spectator, but the US edition. Sorry. Wonderful. Yeah. Formerly uh, of thank Bloomberg. Thank you so much. Yes, formerly of Bloomberg. Daily Beast. Formerly of the Daily Beast. Eli, thank you for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. Love this podcast. It's a, it's, it's a good one to be on. We will jump in to our front page. These are the stories that we thought were most important this week. CNN, Eli, has a new boss. They have tapped the former New York Times chief, Mark Thompson, to, as the Wall Street Journal puts it, lead the struggling network. And I'm going to read from the journal story. As CEO of the Times between 2012 and 2020, Thompson oversaw a successful transformation of the publication, building a formidable online subscription business and expanding into other digital offerings such as podcasts. For Warner Brothers Discovery chief executive David Zaslav, the choice of Thompson is a striking contrast to his previous pick as CNN CEO Chris Licht, a TV producer who had never managed a major news operation. Licht left abruptly in June after a little more than a year in the job. Mark Thompson, yes, he's a veteran of the New York Times. He's also a veteran of the BBC. And he's a guy who clearly comes from the business side of this world as opposed to the editorial side of this world. But I will say, I don't know that much about him because obviously I come from the editorial side of this world. But I thought a guy who spent years and years at the New York Times and at the BBC, what could be a better fit for CNN? Well, uh, it seems like a real perfect fit. Somebody who will help them with the business side of their operation and I am certain is in tune with their existing editorial vision. My hope is that under Thompson's leadership that CNN can create a new special project called the 1979 Project where they trace the true history of the scourge of 24-hour cable news journalism starting with the uh, debut of CNN and (laughs) give us the real history and then maybe we could teach it at school so we don't repeat this terrible era that we've been in of of sort of like feckless like you know the 24-hour news cycle it just seems is i don't know it doesn't feel it feels like over when you have as a cable medium when you have everything on the internet right i do and over the top streaming yeah and always finding like an obsession thing so it's like kind of priming priming us to always feel like we're in the middle of some news emergency when a lot of times it wasn't if you remember what was it? Before Trump, the big CNN story was the missing plane in the Pacific Ocean. And, and they just showed like <laughs> like it's the they just showed the ocean and they're like and then they have the analysts who would be like, yeah, you know what we've learned here is that the it was the, the Earth Malaysia, is so big. Malaysia Airlines. Yeah, the Malaysia, they're right. The Earth is so big and like the ocean is so big. And like maybe we maybe we maybe we like there's more to explore. And I, it's like all like blah. And yeah. before that, you remember the poop cruise? Yeah, the poop cruise. Right. It was like. That's like the model. And like, we're going to bring in this bead, like all the, you know, these austere brands, allegedly. And so this really seems to me like somebody who will tighten up the business side, maybe create a few more like at the times, you know, they they 
started games and cooking and all these other things. So maybe we'll see stuff like that at CNN. But I do CNN's not. CNN's kind of done that. Like they do. I do documentaries. not see a change. Well, Licht came in and started getting rid of those things, and he wanted to change the editorial side. That's where he came from. But right. I, so I don't think this guy is going to be tinkering with, you know, trying to do straight news over there. You know, like uh, CNN my whole, did that like the, every decade they did like a like of course a I love of course. Of course, I liked those things. I like and, it too. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, yeah. The Manson murders. I I the thought 60s. their yeah. decades were great. Anyhow, so this seems like you know, uninspired, sensible. And my whole thing with the, them, their de- decision to try to Chris Lick's attempt to change the editorial vision was: what personnel are you going to do that with? Like, who do you have who's going to bring this network back to the center? Because you're. Uh, your network is filled with left-leaning or totally left-wing people, so I don't really know how you're going to bring I, the network I've noticed a slight dip. Okay, so, I mean, have you noticed this, that, like, there was that moment after in after January 6, 2021, where I think Jake Tapper said, I'm not going to have any Republicans on who deny the election. Remember that? Oh, yeah. How could, how could you... How could we forget, Eli? Okay, so, but, like, now... It seems like the, the the Tapper himself and CNN has sort of dropped that. Then he came and, out and had to defend. He came out and defended the Trump. Right. The uh, Trump town hall. It's town like hall and, thing. And, and, this is what the party is. We have to cover it. This is the news. But somehow that didn't apply to, you know, all the other people. Anyway, I guess I just feel that there was a moment that lasted maybe up until I, it would be interesting for historians at some point to look at this. But. We were in a frenzy, like, till maybe, like, the fall of 2021, and then we suddenly had to pay attention to the fact that Joe Biden oversaw this disastrous pullout from Afghanistan, and that that's when his poll numbers started going down, and I think that the news industry has kind of been slow, but they have to, they have to, you, you can't continue to sort of present yourself as the objective news and then only be on one side of the political equation. So, I don't know, have you seen attack maybe back towards the center that it's not as extreme as it was two years ago or not by, I mean, I don't know, I'm maybe by five or ten degrees okay that's a, a little bit yeah a little bit in part because there's forced coverage of i mean biden's decrepit and yeah. non-compass mentis and so there's an extent to which like they gotta cover that but i thought tapper was like covered the dorm marginal. report fairly although others didn't you know what i'm saying like there was so it was like there were, the, you know, the, it wasn't it wasn't like in 2020 when everybody in the same singing off the same sheet was saying the Hunter laptop was Russian disinformation. There might be it might be a little bit better. Let's pivot and, Let's pivot. and talk about right wing media because all is not really well there either. On the Trump sort of Trump's way of stepping on the Fox News debate in which he didn't participate was to was to show up in Fulton County, Georgia, and have his mugshot taken. <laughs> and Jesse Waters' coverage of this, I just want to play the clip. So this is Fox News primetime. I am now going to book the Fulton County photographer for my Christmas card. <laughs> because, Judge, and I say this with a s- unblemished record of heterosexuality, he looks good. And, and he looks hard. And... <laughs> What is there to say? Was that an intentional double entendre or was he just <laughs> saying hard and meaning like he's like a hard rock, you know, like um, in the yard or something? I don't know. They they really are mirror images of each, each other. The ridiculousness of CNN and this stuff on Fox. It is ridiculous. It, I mean, what did you think of the phenomenon, Eliana, of all of the Trump supporters getting their mugshot taken in solidarity with Trump. I thought that was, from just a kind of interesting social media campaign, once again, like, taking lemons and making a little bit of lemonade, even though I don't think it's going to make much of a difference because it seems like there's a lot of indictments out there. And even though I can oppose it on principle, it seems like he's going to get nailed for something, you know? I, I He'll get nailed for something. It will do nothing to the, yeah. you know, to dissuade his core supporters. And, I mean... The the issue with the indictments, this has nothing to do with the press, although the press isn't isn't really covering this part, is that Trump can campaign now because he's free as a bird. But 
the way the indictments are all scheduled, the way this has all been done, means that it, it will allow him to win the primary, essentially. Mm-hmm. But he's going to be tied up in court during the general. It took two and, years to come up with this cockamamie thing in Fulton. Right. That's interesting. You couldn't have just done this um, in 2021, maybe. And I don't think that like that has been adequately covered. Like the careful timing of this to tie Trump up du- precisely during the general election. And without I'm not sure the extent to which those Trump supporters are aware that, like, he's not going to be able to campaign in the general election. Anyhow, it, continuing on the Fox debate, the Richmond North of Richmond singer Oliver Anthony, whose song was played and featured and the subject of the moderator's first question, has, is speaking out saying he is unhappy with Fox's use of their song. He says, I wrote that song about those people. Oh, the, the people on the debate stage. Exactly. So the headline is, Richmond North of Richmond singer Oliver Anthony slams use of song at Republican debate. It's aggravating seeing people on conservative news trying to identify with me like I'm one of them, singer-songwriter says in a new statement that addresses politicization of his chart-topping viral country hit. I have He's many said. things to say about this. Okay. First of all, you've got to understand if you're an artist, and I'm using that term loosely, that when you put something out in the world, people are going to interpret it and take it their own way. It's just a basic, you know, we can't. So you, you're not going to be able to dictate how people understand your work because that's not how art and entertainment work. That's A. B, this is actually a recurring problem for Republican politicians. The most classic example is the song Born in the USA. Born in the USA, if you don't listen to the lyrics, sounds like the most patriotic song ever. There's a great story about how George Will saw Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and insisted, you know, told the White House, you've got to, this guy's great. You know, there's, you know, he wrote about it at the time or something. And so it became part of like Reagan's. And then Bruce Springsteen found out about it. Bruce Springsteen is a super progressive, you know, guy. And he's like, don't use my song. And actually, guess what? This song's really about how crappy America is because of the Vietnam War. And so it's been a problem going back. And there are, as we know, some conservative pop stars like Kid Rock, Five for Fighting, who did Cal oh Scratch gosh. Fever, Five Ted for Nugent. When I worked at Fox News, they were on like All every the, day. Every day, only, right. They're, they're the, the only, only group, right, exactly. Like it says, And like, you know, we might be seeing, there were like little moments like little wayne once gave an interview at the height of black lives matter saying actually i have nothing to do with black lives matter or money matters to me or something like that but for the most part that industry is is pretty left and it's just gonna have to it's just like a natural disadvantage and you know it turns out this oliver anthony guy is not he's in he's doing country music and he's not even down with the gop so what does that tell you well the other thing that's interesting about this is that and that it is worth him acknowledging is that his song became this big viral hit, which is the reason it was asked about on the debate yeah. stage, because right wingers loved it. You know, they read, they heard what they wanted in it, and it rocketed to the top of the charts. And he was a nobody, basically. And so, you know, a little gratitude to your fans would be nice. Well, yeah, it seems like a bad, yeah, in that respect. But I just, you know, like I, you got to feel bad because it's like every time, every. Every four years, the Democrats can count on, like, the biggest stars in the world coming out for them. You know what I mean? Um, And separately, I thought that was, like, a silly question to start a Republican debate off with. This is not, I I don't think, what They should have have started with, like, do you think Jeffrey Epstein was murdered? (laughs) I'd like to know. They needed to get on with you. Vivek. Vivek only. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Raise your hand. Yeah. We're only asking this of a back. <laughs> Eli, in further Fox News coverage, I'm not sure how much attention this got, but I found it very interesting that Fox News ran a story months ago that the family alleging that one of the families of the of one of the Marines killed in Afghanistan in the Afghan terror attack. And the Marines name is Nicole Gee or Nicole G. I'm not sure how it's pronounced was forced to pay to ship her remains back from Afghanistan. And yeah, they alleged that her family had to pay $60,000 for this. And the Marines, a spokesman for the Marines, 
told the network several times and, you know, went up the ranks saying this is not true. This is not true. So the original headline of the Fox News piece was family forced to pay to ship body of Marine killed after Pentagon policy change, colon, egregious injustice. And the story spread around. Eventually, they removed the word forced from the headline and tweaked the lead paragraph. And the Marine Corps apparently kept working behind the scenes on this. Well, now military.com has a really good story. The headline is Inside the Marine Corps' Fight with Fox News Over a False Gold Star Family Story. And they write, The Marine Corps worked behind the scenes last month in an attempt to convince Fox News to retract its false story, claiming a Gold Star family was forced to pay $60,000, yada, yada. Is any of that true? No. So there's no no one paid $60,000. A nonprofit paid $60,000 to have the Marine shipped, and this is apparently like standard operating procedure. Well, it's standard operating procedure for the U.S. military to not leave right. anyone behind you right. there, you know, mm-hmm. dead. Right. The interesting part was that the article was just wiped from the Fox News website. Yeah. The Fox News never issued a correction. And as a result of the story now getting this attention, the network has apologized to the family. Okay. But they've still scrubbed the story and not yeah, issued like, any, just any own correction. It. It's okay. <laughs> you screwed it up. It's fine. Ooh. So, military.com writes the article was removed completely without explanation, even as outrage over the alleged injustice continued to spread online. Meanwhile, the original claims in the story, though incorrect, included a kernel of truth. The policy at the center of the story, launched in the summer of 2021, it requires family members of fallen service members to front money for funeral transportation to a second location. Under the policy, they would then be reimbursed by the Pentagon later. But the nonprofit honoring our fallen through an anonymous donation from a veteran paid to fly Guy's remains or G's remains on private transportation to Arlington National Cemetery, according to the Marine Corps. So no money was required from the family and the nonprofit stepped in before any reimbursement process was even started, let alone one with a $60,000 price tag. The real story is a good enough story. As I is. totally agree. Families shouldn't be fronting that. That should be covered by the government or somebody. I, mean, I, I totally agree. Anyhow... I thought the whole thing was interesting. And then journalistically, like, you cannot just pull a story down. You got to own the mistakes. This happened. It was I was maybe my third month in the job at the Beacon where we thought that we had a scoop on who Time was going to name its man of the year. I can't find who it was now. And Time actually changed things up. And they had several. They had, like, you know, three men of the year. And ours was like an honorary or something. Anyhow, right. we've all been through this. We've yeah. ordered something wrong and had to correct it. This happened in my first few months at the Beacon when we got a tip that the whistleblowers of the Trump administration were going to be named the person of the oh, year. Wow. Yeah. And they were instead named guardians of the year. There was a new oh, category. Okay. And Greta Thunberg was person of the year. And we had to go out and say we got it wrong and issue a correction. We didn't pull the, you know, you don't pull the piece down from the website and pretend it never happened. So that's bad form. Well, I mean, a similar thing happened to me after 9-11. I wrote a big piece for UPI that the Bush family in conjunction with the Mossad had been responsible for bringing down the towers. And it was embarrassing. (laughs) Now, I'm kidding, everybody. That's a joke. But let's keep that in anyway. I did a follow-up, and it wasn't really was, six million. Was your, you know. was your source Vivek Ramaswamy? Yeah, did you talk to this guy? And Roger Stone. Yeah. Did um, you get a hot tip yeah, from a hot tip, and it happens to all of us, so no. <laughs> all right. CNN coming in hot with a piece, How Conservatives Use Verbal Jiu-Jitsu to Turn Liberals' Language Against Them. I'm sure Mark Thompson is going to come in and clean all this up, okay? <laughs> I can't wait for that. All right, so CNN writes... Republicans are masters of verbal jujitsu. It's a form of linguistic combat in which the practitioner takes a political phrase or concept popularized by their opponent and gradually turns it into an unusable slur. Like the Japanese martial art known as jujitsu, its devotees avoid taking opposing arguments head on and instead redirect their opponent's momentum to beat them. Critical race theory was once an obscure academic discipline that insisted that racism is more than individual prejudice. It's embedded in laws, policies, and institutions. 
but conservatives redirected the discussion and turned the term into a catch-all phrase that criticizes virtually any examination of systemic racism or history that could make white people uncomfortable. I've been studying communications for 15 years, and it sort of blows me away because I think Democrats are good at doing plenty of things, but they really drop the ball on the communications piece a lot, Cormac says. Lindsey Cormack, a political scientist who focuses on, what do you think Lindsey Cormack focuses on? Race, gender, communications, and politics at oh. the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. That's technical school? <laughs> Stevens, That's like where people would go to learn chemistry or Stevens something? Stevens Institute of Technology is a private research university situated in Hoboken. So the future engineers of America are being oh. taught. Okay, that's interesting. Listen, Eliana. This is one of the things that drives me nuts about progressives. They believe that changing language is like changing reality. This goes back, there's a guy named George Lakoff who 25 years ago was convinced that Democrats would win more elections if we, you know, just change the way we said things. And guess what? Frank Luntz picked up on the same idea, poll-tested words, and this is what spin doctors do. Both sides do this. And what strikes me is that, like, what this story really is is that Clever conservatives like Chris Rufo found out that there had been this massive cultural change at corporations and schools and everything else and started publishing the documents. And then this is now verbal jujitsu where they're not taking on the argument. I mean, it's but but they don't that the point is that the liberals don't even want to have the argument because they're like, oh, we just decided we're going to change the language and this is what it is. So pox on their houses. What a dumb story. <laughs> And this for a technical, like, it's like, I don't understand how this guy, I mean, I don't know. Woman, I need to woman. know more about the Stevens Institute of Technology, but how is this helping, you know, the next generation of, you know, technologists and engineers and so forth? Eli, mm -hmm. that brings us to our style section this week. Regular listeners will notice that our front page was a bit shorter this week than usual because... Eliana's in charge, and Eliana chooses fewer items than Chris, so you should write us and let you know. Do you like a long front page, or do you like a more abbreviated front page style? It's and also August. We will incorporate your feedback. Yes, it is August of an off-political year. All right. And since Eliana is driving the bus this week, the top item of our style section was Bethany Frankel, my favorite, was... She picked up a real pair of Manolo Blahnik, like kitten heel type things, and a fake pair from TJ Maxx. And she wore the two different shoes all around her house and gave a verdict. Do you need to buy the real ones? So let's take a listen. You guys have me working overtime. You want to see them and how they feel and you want to see them on the foot. I understand. Okay. There's no place like Teach. There's no place like Teach. Okay. 39.40. Gotta keep them on all day. Okay, they're equally comfortable. That's just the honest truth. I am sorry. The mules are comfortable, right? They're equally comfortable so far. I'm not running a marathon in them, but they're comfortable, both of them. It's so subtle, but the right one puts more pressure on the heel. The Fonolo, I don't believe, is as comfortable. There's just something about it that hurts, like, on the heel. So the Fonolo is not as comfortable as the real Nolo. I'm happy with that result. All right, now that is news you can use. Sadly, not the outcome that I wanted to hear, which is that the real ones obviously were more comfortable. Ugh, not as good as the Bottega bag review. You're not which buying is Manolos for the comfort. You're buying it for what it says that you can afford Manolo. Yeah, but and if, they look good. But allegedly. but if it's uncomfortable, but the fake ones, I'm happy with fake. Okay. If fake and if it, but if fake is uncomfortable, I'm not buying it. But I'm totally happy with a fake. I don't need to spend money and no, I'm happy with fakes. I'm happy with fake is like a good Vivek campaign slogan. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like you don't. Uh, you don't need the real Donald Trump. I'm well, happy with the fake. It's even, it's even better because his name is pronounced Vivek. Yeah. So you could be like, Vivek, go with fake. Yeah, I'm happy with the fake. 
Vivek. I know it's I know it's not the real Donald Trump, but he's going to be in jail. <laughs> yeah, no. Vivek, go with the fake. Vivek, go with the fake. Uh, we should have Bethany do a review of Vivek, Vivek versus, versus Trump. Donald. Right, exactly. Please, come on, okay. let's break it down. All right, up next, the Wall Street Journal has a wonderful piece on a new trend in dining. Although this is not a new trend. This is like if you go out to eat with Eliana, what you're sure. getting. Who needs an entree? Diners order salad and fries and call it a meal. Traditional guidelines for food combinations are being flung aside for menu mayhem. This is not menu mayhem. This is like, you know, trying to trying to keep things trim. Sure. You Especially know. for like a lunch, right? Totally. Totally. So the journal reports, diners and restaurant workers say that more and more guidelines are flung aside for menu mayhem. Fries traditionally paired with burgers have become salad's best friend. A starter can be had anytime, while a main may be skipped altogether. Food industry consulting firm Technomic. Wouldn't you love to be a food industry consultant? Sure. Food industry consulting firm Technomic has observed an increase in customers ordering sides over the last year and an est and an es and estimated that 15% of diners order sides as their entree. I love a meal of appetizers and a salad or, ap you know, just appetizers and some fries. Diners hack the menu to find cheaper apps. Okay, I don't care about that, but saving the savings aren't worth having a boring meal. He's seen people order sides of sautéed escarole or steamed broccoli rabe as appetizers. No, oh no, that's not what I'm talking. Like some meatballs, yeah, some fries. Like okay, today for lunch, I'm thinking I'm doing Italian. I'm thinking like some cheese and meats and some mm -hmm. bread and like a salad. So good and. This person says, I can't tell you how many people would ignore my recommendation against ordering a certain side dish to start, then be miserable with what they ordered. Well, I'm not ordering like a hot steamed vegetable for a starter. That's a no. That's a no. It must be delicious. First of all, if you're if you have a lunch at the Palm, which a lot of, you know. Uh, oh, the Palm. You got to do the shrimp. You got um, to do the Gigi salad, which the, has a little I, shrimp. Same. The and Gigi salad is a meal, by the way. That's you could just totally you can, the Gigi salad is a meal. And most people are in the lunch department, at least the lunch crowd, are not getting, like, a gigantic steak. Listen, as you get older, for the younger listeners, you can't just have, like, a mar two martinis and a New York strip and then expect to get anything done in the afternoon. It's a... Those Mad Men era that of our, our forefathers... How did they do it? How did they do it? They had these boozy lunches with big, fat steaks, and they... St and yet... And yet... We still managed to win World War II. So what does that tell you, Producer Colin? I don't know what it tells you. But my point is, is that you can't, you can't, so that's a lunch thing. But then, you know, if it's like a special occasion. And, that's for anything. I, I, yeah. you know, if you're smaller, a smaller bodied, as they would say, you know, as the wokes would say, if you're a smaller bodied yeah. person, like you, no matter what, you can't have the, the appetizer, the entree, the side, the dessert, the drinks, like you're going to... It's a lot. You can't stomach it. Are there kind of rotund overeaters who would go and say, you know what? I would like the hanger steak and a side of the salmon entree. Do you know what I mean? Like are the people who do it, who do it the other <laughs> way, like who that. go in the other direction. Like, that. like That's good. Yeah. No, I want the veal parmesan and a side of the chicken parmesan. Um, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> we should send in a, a note asking the author of that and, and report back. Well, that brings us to our obsessions of the week. Yeah. You'll notice no sports section this week with Chris off. Okay. Okay. No sports section. But that brings us to our obsessions of the week. where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. Well, Eli, Eli. Am I going I, first? No, I'm, go, I'm You're going, going first. Okay. You're going first with favorites. Okay. Eli new here, doesn't know how the order works yet. All right. As a Yale alum, I obviously love this story that is yeah. so amusing. There's class dynamics here. There's Ivy League dynamics. There's so much. The New York, new York Times picked this up. The headline is Yale students got a terrifying message, period, from the campus police. Now, we know that crime is on the rise in the country's major cities. New Haven has always grappled with this. The subheadline is there was anger after the campus police union, which is renegotiating a con contract, shared a safety flyer with a picture of the Grim Reaper on it. Now, what happened on campus here is that 
students were moving into their dorms and the campus police wanted to warn new students on campus that like the city can be dangerous guys be careful mm -hmm. and so they distributed flyers to new students listing quote alarming local crime statistics and instructed students to quote remain on campus avoid public transportation and stay off the streets after 8 p.m Illustrated with a picture of the Grim Reaper, the flyers wished students an <laughs> ominous good luck. But perhaps most jarring was the source of the flyer listed plainly in its text. It, its text, the union that represents Yale's own campus police. In the days since the union distributed the survival guide leaflets, Yale administrators and police officials have been scrambling to calm first-year students and their parents. Anthony Campbell, the chief of the Yale Police Department, said the leaflets wrongly painted New, Hamlet, New Haven as a war zone. I am extremely hurt and sad and disgusted by the actions taken by the Yale Police Benevolent Association. The police union, that's the police union, said Mr. Campbell, who once led the New Haven Police Department, I think it is divisive and destructive for any police officer to disparage the city in which they work. Okay, I don't think anybody was disparaging the city here. I yeah. This was like well-intentioned if maybe a little heavy-handed with, with the image touch. of the Grim Reaper. That's a touch. So... This goes on. The town-gown relationship, meaning the relationship between Yale and the city of New Haven, with Yale obviously being upper crust and the city being a little bit lower rent. Uh, the town-gown relationship has long been fraught between Yale, one of the world's most selective universities, where white students make up the largest demographic, and New Haven, which has long struggled, struggled with crime and poverty and is majority black and Hispanic. Students and city residents talk about the Yale bubble. Jay Gitlin, a history professor who teaches the popular course Yale in America, called it Fortress Yale. According, articulating the longstanding town-gown mentality, he said, New Haven is out there, Yale is here. The story is really amusing, and honestly, I think there, there's really nothing wrong with As what the cops did. But, but, Eli, but you know what? Right? So they're the Eli's. The Eli's, but they said the quiet part out loud. And oh, no, can't yeah. do that, can't do that. Well, well, hold on, I just, I have a memory of... Like 2015, do you remember the, the Halloween costume email from Nick Christakis's wife? Yes. Who was a master at one of the colleges. Right? Yes, a... Not master, sorry. Head of college. Sorry, head of college. Please used to be Eli. called... Used to yes, be called yeah, my, my day. Okay. In the, in the 1700s. Now, wait, okay. In, now, when they were still riding off that legacy <laughs> of slavery. So, as I remember this in 2015, there, the... The, the students who were in an outrage were claiming that this email, which basically said, you're grown up, you're adults now. If you don't like someone's costume, you can you go can up and tell them. Tell them or like, we're not going to protect you from Halloween costumes. And they were like, you're making us unsafe at our own campus. This is not a home. And the whole point was, and we hear this language all the time, that Yale is not safe for students of what color and other right. things like that. And this story is basically like, no, actually... Yale is really safe, <laughs> right? And New Haven is not safe, right? Well, they're saying it, so don't put tell us, head. don't characterize New Haven as being unsafe. That's what. They're oh, saying. is that what like, oh, they're saying? Yeah, don't they're tell saying, us that. Don't disparage New You're Haven. You're acting like out in if we go out in New Haven, yeah. there's going to be some psychology professor who's going to tell us that Halloween costumes aren't a big deal, and that's like terrible. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Anyway, again, pox on all houses. Eli over to you all right well i have a somewhat of an ivy league themed obsession this week too look up if you don't know this woman named joan donovan she is like a the disinformation expert who ran a we have a lot of them actually yeah, too many yeah and she was running something at the harvard kennedy school's shorenstein center like i forget the name of it but some mucky muck thing and she was let go over the summer and now she's being hired by boston university that's the story but the reason i'm obsessed with this is that this woman, Joan Donovan, reading from my notes, is the typhoid Mary of anti-disinformation activism. Because, and this is the problem right now, it's kind of one of the sort of key issues in our country, is that she is like known for claiming things that ended up being true, like the Hunter Biden laptop, as it, being like one of the leading voices of saying what disinformation it is. And so they, she, their, her, her organization commissioned the study in 2021, that found that the mainstream media covered. And if you remember, the mainstream media totally participated in this in this smokescreen, this 
basically a cover-up of the Hunter laptop saying it was all this Russian disinformation. And she said it was an instructive case study on the power of social media and news organizations, remember the social media companies banned the New York Post story, to mitigate media manipulation campaigns. So this is our great Harvard expert. Anyway, I, it was, I think, a smart move to let her go. She didn't get a tenure position, and now she's getting a tenure-track position at Boston University. Home of, home of Ibermax County. Home of the Ibermax, exactly. Perfect. And then, you know, she was also one of these people who were claiming that, you know, like, we're going to play a clip right now. Why don't we play this clip from MSNBC, which loves disinformation, obviously. And here she is explaining that a bunch of true things about COVID were actually disinformation. Yes, the fact that we're still dealing with anti-mask sentiment is is pretty astounding based on the fact that we know what the science is now. We have uh, a very densely networked set of doctors globally that are trading information and are keeping each other abreast of any developments with the pandemic. But in the United States, there still seems to be this uh, debate, and, and we see it actually playing out in school boards uh, as well, that uh, children can't get sick from COVID, that the masks don't work, that the vaccines are uh, something that should be a personal choice. Of course, we saw that with the, the Trump speech last night and, and the booing. And so for me, it's still forced, first and foremost, we got to understand that science is something that evolves and that we need to keep up with it and we need to keep, keep uh, track of it. But disinformation evolves as well alongside uh, these new discoveries. And we have to be very attuned to the fact that we're seeing more and more uh, scientific looking papers that are just trying to trade on attention and sow political discord rather than uh, give people the information they need to stay safe. I think that clip is remarkable, Eliana, because first of all, masks are not effective. Second of all, young kids do not really get sick from COVID. And third of all, Maybe, I mean, you could argue about whether certain professions or something that are in contact, but like certainly the vaccines did not prevent the spread, as many people said. And my view is that whether it's voluntary or not, is not a question of science. It's a question of politics. And there's a lot of good arguments, and I would agree with them, that they should, that people should make decisions for themselves, especially given the fact that there at least are, in some cases, some side effects. And maybe there are certain populations that don't necessarily need it. And the fact is, if she had just been a pundit talking on MSNBC, that's par for the course. There are a lot of people who think that. But she's coming at it from the perspective that if you disagree with these things that I think are true, which turned out not to be true, then it's misinformation and social media companies should do something about throttling this so that more people do not come into contact with this stuff. And then she even says in her comments that Science is something that's evolving and medicine is evolving. And yet she seems to think that there is a fixed policy on commenting about or like, you know what I'm saying, like debating things that we actually probably know less about or knew less about COVID at the time. It's a remarkable thing. It shows this sort of bankruptcy of our gatekeepers. And I'll say one more thing about this in my obsession. We do not need disinformation experts. What we need is to go back to the concept of journalism. And when we have multiple outlets and a story is flubbed by one outlet, there should be always an incentive for other outlets to show up their rivals. That's the way it worked for many years. We should go back to that. And women like, uh, people like Joan Donovan are, are kind of like, basically, it's one of these situations where academics can believe the dumbest things, and, and this is an example of that. A couple of things. Yeah. Why do you think it is that people like this have clung on to the COVID stuff. I don't really have a good explanation. I mean, I think it's a question of it, it, it sorted itself out in a way that the people who liked Trump also didn't like masking. So maybe it's that. The other thing is it's like social control. I mean, there are people who like, listen, COVID was an emergency. It gave governors that chose to, you know, that wanted it extraordinary powers that they normally wouldn't have. That kind of power is desired by people in positions of authority and historically. So there's part of it is that. And then part of it, it was a boon for what I would call kind of the policy entrepreneurs. So after we sort of had the fizzle of Russiagate, but you had all these people who are now experts on online disinformation. Well, where are they going to go? COVID. We're going we're gonna to fight medical disinformation, which is literally killing people and all this other stuff. It's a really bad turn 
And I would hope that the leading, and unfortunately we have a lot of journalists who buy into it, but my hope would be that uh, the jur journalism could, could sort of, you know, get us out of this just cycle of stupidity. One of the problems with journalism, and we've talked a little bit about it on the show, I know we talked about it in our interview with Ben Smith, is, is what you pointed out, where at a lot of these outlets, they're competitive with each other on certain beats. Like with Trump, there's a lot of competition to break news on Trump. But on other topics, there's no competition. Like there is a total herd mentality. There was no competition, uh, by the way, to correct f fake stories about Trump. It, exactly. Like, exactly. Where, where was the competition for that? It was like I know you're totally right. And, and I, there is a sort of it is problematic. I think having having worked in the mainstream, like I can attest to how it works. Like when you. All these people, they socialize together. They, they're part of the same, like, crew. They travel to Iowa together. They go to New Hampshire together. They're one unit, even though they work at different outlets. And it, like, it does degrade the competitive spirit. Also, think about this. And it's the, not like the, sports teams. Right, and the social incentives are such that if you ever accidentally gave oxygen in a broadcast report or in your print story to somebody who is deemed as sort of medical disinformation or something like that, that could be a career killer. If you totally. screw up a story that, you know, I don't know, like if you screwed up the Trump Tower meeting story with Natalia Veselnaskaya and you said that, you know, the Mueller committee had more than circumstantial evidence that there was collusion or something like that, there's no, in, there's no structure. You, you, you don't pay a reputational cost. You don't get fired for getting those stories wrong. I mean, maybe... You get that... promoted. Yeah. You get promoted. <laughs> Many of the people who made the worst mistakes have only seen their stars rise on this stuff. Right. So there's, that's a problem of incentives. And it's because they're telling their audiences what they want to hear. The audience isn't going to say, oh, this person's not credible. The audience rewards it because the audience doesn't say, like, I just want to know the truth and this person is incredible. They want to hear, like, Trump's the worst. And I think there's, like, multiple reasons for there's it. A, exactly. And I think that it's like that has created a problem where journalism is supposed to be the front line against, you know, smoking out this kind of fakery. And it's not really anymore. And so, therefore, these, these policy entrepreneurs like Joan Donovan step in and they give an academic loss to what is a deep kind of a kind of an epistemological challenge that human society has been dealing with was how do we know what is true and we had a good model in liberal democracies and open societies which is no one has a monopoly on the truth and we should all kind of fight it out and the more outlets the better and we'll figure it out we call john Stuart mill called this the marketplace of ideas she doesn't believe in that anymore and she doesn't believe the human beings or American citizens have the capability to just sort of judge for themselves the quality of information. So she's got to put herself, she's, we need her on that wall. You know, she's the one who orders the code red. Anyway, I'm glad Harvard got rid of her. I'm not a big fan of Harvard. And I think it's fitting that she's at the university that, that, that gave that center to Ibram X Kennedy. Eli, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. And we have a lot of mail about our conversation on tipping okay. last week, where Chris said that basically the minimum tip is $5. So if you go and you get a stack of pancakes at the diner and that costs, you know, $6.99, you got to tip $5. And I said, that is no, no, no. No, I, I don't. First of all, I don't go get a lot of like stacks of pancakes at the diner. I don't like eat a lot of breakfast. So I don't have that experience a lot, but. Like, I, I usually, I always tip 20%. And 20 said, the standard. that's wrong. So anyhow, we have a lot of responses. First up, we have Kaylee H. from Newport News, Virginia. And she writes, hi, I love the podcast and appreciate Chris's optimism and Eliana's no-nonsense approach. I just listened to the most recent episode and felt the need to defend Eliana. Eliana is not a cheap a-ho. To be clear, I'm not saying Chris is completely wrong, but 20% is fine. I've worked food service and have survived on tips. If it's of any interest, my rules for tipping are below. One, you can tip as much as you want. Two, 20% is standard. Amazing service gets 30%. Three, you don't have to tip on to-go orders, but you can per rule one. Exception, 
I tip on to-go orders at coffee shops and food trucks. Best, Kaylee H. Okay, thank you, Kaylee. I like that. Hi, okay. Hi, Eliana and Chris. Long-time listener, second-time caller. Oh, this is from Ryan in Australia. American tipping culture has definitely gotten out of hand. I've worked several hospitality jobs, including as a server at Steak and Shake, making $2.15 an hour plus tips in 2003, which, let me tell you, as an awkward 18-year-old guy, does not make a lot in tips working third shift. Uh, I believe that. I also worked as a barista at Beaver Falls Coffee and Tea for a few years, where tipping was very passively suggested but not expected. We've lived in Australia since 2017 and have only been home twice since then due to COVID restrictions. My wife and I definitely noticed the difference last time we were back in the States in July 2022. So many cafes and eateries without table service spun their little iPad stand around to force me to select no tip. I hate that. The guy at the milkshake factory even announced loudly, okay, no tip. Buddy, you're just a high schooler blending ice cream with a Snickers bar. You're not making me a craft cocktail. In Melbourne, Australia, <laughs> the level of service we got at any restaurant or cafe uh, we get at any restaurant or cafe is remarkable, and no one is working for tips. It's just so much more relaxing because there isn't this question about how much I'm going to tip hanging over the interactions with the server. Touche, Ryan. Yeah. Thank um, you. You should tip because they don't make a lot of money, and they, 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 the way the hourly wage of most restaurants are less than minimum wage because they expect that you're going to get the tips. Yeah, so what we talked about last week was the law for these restaurants where they're making less than minimum wage is that if they don't make it up in tips, the restaurant has to make it up to them so that they meet the min- minimum wage. And a few like liberal states, and this was in California, I believe, are challenging that law such that the restaurant has to pay the minimum wage and they get the tips. And so the journal covered it where the restaurateurs are saying, like, we're going to have to jack up prices by 50 percent if you change the law. Why do liberals not understand economics? <laughs> that would be a good Topic cause, by the show. way, but I'm saying it'd be a good cause. Like, you know, we're we're going to subsidize online economics courses to, for progressives who don't seem to understand them. You know what I'm saying? I'm t- I just I, I, out of charity because we care about America. We, we want to make the world better. That brings us to Chris's favorite time of the week, where I am forced to say something nice. But this week, Eli's going to lead by example with our favorite items. Eli, what was your favorite news item of the week? Well, I just, I love it when culture clashes with politics. This kind of comes full circle to our Oliver Anthony item. It does, right? I mean, it's it's Vivek, of course, who... You know, how can you not watch, right? And he was, he likes Lose Yourself by Eminem. Of course he likes Eminem. Of course he likes Eminem. Right? Why don't you like Eminem? I love Eminem. I'm okay. not saying it, but I'm saying, of okay. course, Vivek likes Eminem. You know, I mean, of course he does. And he was rapping at the Iowa. He, he rapped Lose Yourself at a karaoke in Iowa. And he's like, you know, that's, he gets his crowds going with the Lose Yourself. And so Eminem found out about it and, and sent him a, a cease and desist letter saying, stop using my, my music for your stupid campaign. I don't know, man. I kind of feel like Eminem should be leaning into this. This is a whole nother group of fans that he's going to be getting. He doesn't really need it. You know, Eminem's a legend, but I don't know. Like, I don't like it when uh, artists, artists, as I said, they have to accept. You put something out of the world, people are going to take it how they're going to take it. Like, and I guess, like, I really would like to know in 2024, is Eminem going to, come out and say, yo, vote for Biden. It seems so anti-Eminem, right? I mean, Eminem, of course it's Vivek. Vivek is the Eminem candidate. He, they <laughs> they belong together. Why? Why? What? I don't know enough. Why? Okay, because Eminem made his bones as a rapper. He's an ex, he's a superb rapper coming up, offending people, talking about concepts that they didn't want to hear, admitting to things, like violating norms. That is politically what a lot of Vivek is doing touching lots of third rails, inventing himself in this sort of way. I just sort of see them, you know, I, I don't understand why they can't work together, even though I, I, I gather, you know, okay, Eminem is a, is a liberal, but he, he shouldn't go the route of Howard Stern, which is Howard Stern went from the pariah of the 90s to almost like kind of a court jester for the power elite. Or Stephen Colbert now is just basically, you know, he's just like mouthing, what you know tech gazillionaires want to hear or something 
I would like to see Eminem remain this, you know, guy who makes like the establishment uncomfortable, even though he he is now has millions of his own. And it seems like if if he was going to get behind any kind of candidate, it would be a guy like Vivek who I think makes makes the establishment uncomfortable. Now, that said, I would never vote for Vivek because he's a conspiracy theorist and has a lot of dumb ideas and presents his dumb ideas as if he is just like, you know, reinvented the world or something like that. Like his idea of here's what we're going to do with China. We're going to defend Taiwan and then we're going to stop defending Taiwan and just leave leave the Chinese. Like, how is that a brilliant idea? But the way he says it, it always like, but I just sort of see that the two the two are similar. So that's that's my argument. All right. My favorite item was this wonderful story in Tablet Magazine by our friend Armin Rosen. Great piece. About a news, blockbuster news item buried in legal documents. Cutter's World Cup FIFA bribe documents exposed. So good. And these documents show the amount of money Cutter paid to FIFA officials to get the World Cup in Cutter. And it is so good. And my favorite little item was that Qatar had to pay FIFA committee members from different countries different amounts of money. Like, the price of these people Mm -hmm. was different. So he reports, the price of some FIFA committee votes was apparently higher than others. For instance, Nicholas Leos, the now-deceased former head of South America's Soccer Federation, got 5.4 million pounds, or $8.5 million dollars. But the highest payments went to Vitaly Mutko, Russia's minister for sport between 2008 and 2016, chairman of the successful Russian bid for the 2018 World Cup and deputy prime minister from 2016 to 2020. He got 46 million pounds, which is $72.6 million on February 19, 2009, followed by another 21.5 million pounds or $34 million on December 20th, 2010. So that guy got $100 million and... The South American guy sold out for eight and a half million dollars. The whole story is really, really, really good about how Cutter landed this World Cup. And then, of course, the whole world, you know, everyone who showed up had to sweep all the Cuttery human rights abuses and everything yeah. under the rug when it was there. Fantastic story. Definitely worth your time. Does FIFA pretend that they're on the up and up? I don't even think so anymore. Do they? I mean, like, I'm not, just are you like, not a big it. soccer fan? This is my extent of interest yeah. in soccer. Yeah. I'm not a big soccer fan either, but I'm just saying, that, you know, they got to lean into that. That is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. Thank you so much to Eli Lake for joining us Great and Chris is Stead. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. 